Good morning, church. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, okay, so the scripture for today is in the book of Philippians. Um, chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. This can be found on page 1783 uh, in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you would like to follow along. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Thanks, Augustina. Morning. Good to see you all here this morning. So for those of you who uh, don't worship with us regularly, my name's Devin. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. And whether you're here joining us online or uh, in person, it's just it's so good to see so many faces that I, that I know and love. Um, somebody asked me recently how, was, how I was doing adjusting to the community at High Point and how I was fitting in. And it was not hard for me to think to say, I can't think of a church I've been a part of where I know so many amazing individuals. And I've only been here for a few months. So I'm looking forward to a few more months. Um, all right, now that I've rubbed your shoulders, uh, I wanna say, <laughs> the first thing I wanna say is happy Pentecost. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. We just came out of the season of Easter and whether you're aware of it or not, Pentecost is the longest season of the church calendar. You're in Christmas for what, 12 days? Lent, 40 days? Easter, 50 days? We're gonna be living the season of Pentecost until November the 27th. Think about the wisdom of the church calendar there in making Pentecost, the season where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, sort of the birthday of the church in the second chapter of Acts, making that the thing that we celebrate for the longest portion of our year. Um, and one of the things I love about life in the Holy Spirit, one of the, it's really kind of the thing that distinguishes God's first covenant with Israel from his second covenant with Israel and with everybody is the coming of the Holy Spirit, his sending of the Holy Spirit on all of us. And I love what Paul says about the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter two, that the Spirit can fathom any mystery, even the depths of God, so that what we don't yet understand, what is completely impossible for us to grasp given our natural minds, is completely clear to the Spirit. 
And one of the areas where we encounter God the most frequently, actually we're certain, we know that when we come to this particular uh, aspect of our Christian lives, we're running right into God, it's when we open our Bibles. Both Paul and James compare the Bible to, uh, to like a mirror where you're gonna encounter the face of God. What you can't necessarily though see with your natural eyes, the Spirit can fathom. The Spirit can, uh, can help us really, really explore and sound out the depths of the Bible. I mean, when I think about reading the Bible, the images that come to my mind are images like exploring a cave where you know there's a hidden treasure, or like diving in the Caribbean Ocean where you know there's a sunken Spanish galleon that just has hordes of gold on it, and you're diving and you're looking and you're hunting. The Spirit, the spirit is what God gives us to ensure that we succeed in our quest because he's our treasure and he wants us to know him and find him. And if the Bible is one of those places where we find him, I just want to encourage you, uh, the manuscript Bible study class. How many of you have ever been a part of the manuscript Bible study class here? Yeah. Next week, Sunday, during the 9 a.m. service, they are starting First Thessalonians. And there's just so many awesome themes in First Thessalonians. Uh, faith, hope, love, waiting patiently until we see our Lord Jesus, how we can imitate Paul and the great examples of the Christians around us. If you haven't read 1 Thessalonians in a while, because I think it is one of those New Testament letters that we often just kind of skip over while we're on our way to, I don't know, Philippians. <laughs> Take a minute. Next Sunday morning, I challenge you if, you, if you are really, really eager to live out your faith to experience what the power of the Spirit is actually like in your life and the way that he can bring insight to the word, especially this is for you. If you struggle with reading your Bible, you sometimes you feel you open up the pages and it may as well be written in Chinese, go practice it with other people who can teach you and guide you and walk through it with you in the manuscript Bible study class starting next week at 9 a.m. All right, since the sermon is actually not about 1 Thessalonians, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great goodness to us, your kindness to us, and to everyone and everything that you have made. Thank you that what you create, you perfect, that you don't leave us abandoned, that uh, it's not your will to start something and then leave it half finished. I pray that today you would come and, Lord, that the Spirit would be the spirit of prophecy that would edify and exhort and console us. Uh, I pray especially that you would encourage the many of us who sometimes feel stuck in our faith or who, who wonder what you're doing and just can't see the end and who feel tempted to lose hope. Lord God, I, I come to you just so painfully aware of my limitations and weakness. Lord, I, I don't have what it takes to touch and encourage a human heart. I, I don't have the wisdom that can point people in the right way, but Lord, where I'm limited, you are not, so I bring you everything that I have, like a boy with a few loaves of bread and a few small fish. God, please come and multiply it for the sake of your hungry people. Add your blessing to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in graduate school, I got to the stage of my program where finally I got to write my, my doctoral dissertation. It takes like two years of really intense work and then once your professors have kind of beaten you into an intellectual pulp, they say, now you get to write a book. And that's supposed to be an encouraging thing. <laughs> but uh, at that point, you know, I'd been working really, really hard for a while and I was like, I need a hobby so badly. I need to do something besides just stare at these dead languages on a page 
12 hours a day. And I need to be active again. I mean, I, I used to be an athlete back in the day, and I, I was just kind of sick of only sitting in a library. So I was looking around for a hobby that would keep me active, be fun, maybe learn something. And what I found was jujitsu. Um, does anyone else here like train in jujitsu, like to roll? Yeah, I see a few hands. You can always tell just by looking at their faces, because you, what you gotta do is you gotta look at their ears, and if their ears look normal, they're probably not really into jujitsu. But anyway. So I love this. I, I would do this five days a week. I would train really, really hard. It just kept my mind really clear, focused, felt good to be healthy. And I, I will say there is just nothing, nothing that will clarify your focus and vision, like when you're rolling around on the ground with a 250-pound guy who's trying to knock you out with your own clothing. It's just so perfectly focusing and clarifying. And I was, I was having a lot of fun with it, but one day uh, I, made the mistake, I made the mistake of rolling around with one of my instructors who was a black belt and uh, just kind of felt my knee go pop and I was like, ooh, that wasn't quite right. So I, I tapped out and said, all right, we've got to call it for the day. And then I was walking around over the next few weeks and I just kept hearing this clicking and this clicking and this clicking. I was like, okay, that's, that's probably not good. So I went to see a surgeon um, and I was pretty encouraged walking in the door when I saw this surgeon because you see all the, I was in Atlanta at the time and you just see all these jerseys from Atlanta Falcons up on the wall, all these signed jerseys of the guys he's operated on. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling all right about this. And he's like, yes, we need to repair your meniscus. It is torn. This is the only way we're gonna get you back in action. So I said, fine, let's go do it. Um, I didn't really ask what the recovery was going to be like because I was just kind of gung-ho. I was like, I can handle this. Everybody's had knee surgery at least once. And yeah, and laughing is the correct reaction because, you know, I got home from surgery that day and I hadn't really bothered to do any of the normal things you do before surgery. I hadn't stocked up my fridge. I hadn't made sure that anyone was going to be around to help me. I'm just a single guy in my late 20s sitting here in my condo in Atlanta trying not to starve while on narcotics. And it turns out, maybe you don't know this, but when you're on narcotics, it's kind of hard to think clearly, but you really do need them for pain management after a major surgery like knee surgery. So all the while I'm sitting here with my leg elevated, totally immobile, what am I not doing? I'm not writing that book, right? It's just kind of sitting there, taunting me. And the longer I sit and the longer I recover, the less I'm getting done. And the more that I sit and the longer that I recover, the less I'm getting done. I mean, I'm healing up. And then eventually I get to the point where I'm, I'm well enough to go and see um, a sadomasochist. I mean, a physical therapist. And, and this PT guy is working really closely with my surgeon to get me back in action. So after, after six weeks of excruciating pain in which I'm really only doing physical therapy and not much else, I get to the point where I can jog a little bit on a track. And I remember the guy taking a video of me to send to my surgeon, and they were all feeling really good about it. And I was feeling pretty good about it too, because who wouldn't rather be able to jog around a track rather than just lie totally immobile 24 hours a day? But all that time, what's not happening? I'm not writing that book. And all right, so now you're saying, cool story, bro. What What does this actually have to do with Philippians? Just close your eyes and think for a second strictly about you and the way that you relate to God. Now, if you had to guess, or you don't have to guess, you probably know intuitively, of the characters in that story, which one feels more to you like God? Me, leaving my book half finished, 
or my surgical team keeping constant touch with me, working with me to fix what was broken and bring it back to health. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the right answer to that question. But I'm not interested in the right answer. I'm interested in the one that you actually feel viscerally in your gut. Because I talk to so many Christians who really kind of believe that God is just not that thrilled with them and that as far as God is concerned, he's, he's fine to start them as a book or a project and leave them unfinished. That they're just, they're just that like one-third built-out woodworking project that's sitting in God's garage that he's totally forgotten about. The message of Philippians is that that's not the case. So today, really all we're gonna do is celebrate God's promise, his past work in you, and the certainty of his future work in you. So, since I've started by thinking about school again, I, all of you may as well join me. Uh, can you put yourselves back mentally in that first day of class, whether it was in college or high school or wherever, but think about that day where you sit down for the first time, you meet your new teacher and they hand out a syllabus and they tell you what you're gonna do in the course of the semester. And if they're a good teacher, they don't just tell you everything you need to do, they tell you kind of why this matters and who you're going to become and what you're gonna be able to do as a result of sitting with them over the course of weeks. And uh, as a teacher, one of my favorite things to teach, believe it or not, was ancient Greek. I loved teaching introduction to ancient Greek because you get all of these folks who come in and sit in front of you who have never tried to do anything like this in their lives but I can look them in the eye with total confidence and I can say, if you stick with this class for two semesters, you are gonna be able to read your New Testament in the original language. Stick with me, work with me, gut it out. This is the person that you will become. And I have to set their expectations that high because maybe some of you know, it actually turns out Greek's not that easy. Along the way, it's pretty normal to get discouraged and to think, oh my gosh, another lesson I still, like the previous two lessons I haven't mastered yet. But I know that if I can get these people to stick with me over the course of two semesters, they're gonna be able to pick up the Gospel of John and read it. And there's nothing like watching the light come on in somebody's eyes when they, when they think about how at the end of a, a year of just, just arduous training, how they can do something that they just couldn't do in the past. And Christians also, for their whole lives, they have a syllabus. And one of the essential jobs of Christian pastors and Christian teachers is to remind ourselves and all of you of exactly what our goal is, why we're going through what we're going through right now, why we're focusing our energy and attention on things like manuscript Bible study classes that are gonna help us learn and grow and read the Bible better. I love Christianity because it's a big questions, big answers religion. Pastors, pastors and teachers in the church are not really interested in helping you fill in the gaps in the worldview that we, you already have. Just a little bit of good here and a little bit of good there. They're interested in like blowing up your worldview and reconfiguring it all around Jesus. So we ask some of the same questions that the folks around us in the world ask, but we give radically different answers. And here's one question that really occupies us. What does a good human life look like? What is the good life? What is the point to sitting through and enduring however many decades God gives us and what should we be working towards? Now, if you were a Christian around the time of Paul and you were hearing Philippians read to you aloud in the church, one of the great answers that anyone else could have given you is, well, your point is to live a life of human virtue and flourishing. And ancient people built 
educational systems that were all about producing certain virtues in human beings. But by the way, it was only for a few human beings. If you're an ancient philosopher like Plato, you don't really think that everybody out there has the capacity to live a really noble, virtuous, truly good human life. So a virtue like justice, wisdom, courage, prudence, all of those things are necessary for the sort of philosopher kings who really ought to be ruling society, but most of the rest of you just need to kind of shut up and listen to those people. Now, thank God that's not the society we live in today, and in our time, our, our society gives a very different answer to that question. We say, well, you know, what it means to live a good human life is to be a, a great participant in the democratic experiment. So we build up educational systems that are all about teaching people how to thrive in an American-style democracy. We want you to be critical thinkers. We want to give you the basic, like, analytical and literary skills so that you can read a newspaper and understand what your responsibilities are in the world today. And that worked for us for a couple hundred years, and now we've, we've kind of arrived at a moment where we've even broadened beyond that, where we say, you know what, when we look over our history, some of the times when we've tried to go about making people to be good citizens in a democracy, what we ended up doing was really, really hurting a bunch of folks in the same way that like Plato in ancient Athens would have hurt a bunch of folks who didn't live up to his ideal of the philosopher king. I mean, one of the great examples of this is racism, is systemic racism. It, it says, systemic racism in American society happens when you build an educational system that's, only a, that's already taken some sort of a cultural ideal as its end, and that ideal usually looks something like Western Europe. So if you lay Western European values and their idea of what like critical thinking and great literature is onto, say, North African civilization, you're gonna find that they don't measure up. Now, one answer for why they don't measure up is, huh, there's a different society with its own values, with its own ideals, maybe we should learn something about it. The other answer, the one that we've typically taken in Western history is to say, wow, those savages, we need to civilize them. And that's where you get nasty ideas like the white man's burden. And fortunately, we're at a stage in, in our history where we're kind of grappling with that reality, but when we grapple with that reality, we tend to kind of overreact and say, hang on a second, if we tried really, really hard in the past to impose our values on people with our educational system, and we ended up really, really hurting them, well, we better kind of not just tap the brakes, we better really, really pump the brakes and say, we're gonna make, we're gonna make sort of forbearance or tolerance our great civic virtue. We're not gonna tell you too much about what the actual goal of a human life ought to be because in the process, we're afraid that we're gonna hurt you. We're gonna like violate the Hippocratic Oath of doing no harm. And so we, we say, well, let you tell us what your best life looks like and we'll try to organize our society in such a way that you can grow up into your own best life, your own vision of human flourishing. This is why it's really, really important for people in the church to immerse themselves in Scripture, because if you are a Christian, you already have an educational syllabus, and you already know what the end goal of the syllabus is. It is not living your best life. It is not being just a great participant in a like, multi-ethnic democratic society. The goal of your Christian life is what the New Testament consistently calls perfection. And what we mean by perfection 
is becoming everything that Jesus is. And so when Paul says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, he doesn't spell out there what he means by completion, but what he means is Jesus. One way I know this is because if you were to look at Colossians chapter one, Paul says that this is the goal that he labors toward in all his churches. When he goes to these churches and he's teaching the word and he's preaching the gospel and he's sitting there and living with these people in their town for however many months, this is his goal. He says, I want to present every one of you complete, perfect in Christ. And when he's talking with the Galatians, a church that has kind of gone off the rails in his absence, this is what he says. He says, I am in labor pains with you again until Christ is formed in you. This is what keeps Paul up at night, is he wants to see Jesus in Corinth, Jesus in Galatia, Jesus in Philippi, and he wants to see all these little Jesuses that make up his church. What this means for all of you and for me is that when we look at Jesus, we don't just see God in the flesh. We also see what it means to be a perfect human being. We, Jesus, when he comes in the flesh, answers all of the big questions about what it actually means to live a good human life. So when you read about Jesus, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see your future. You see the end of your journey. That paradigm is written for us on every page. Think about who he is. This is why Jesus himself says that, hey, if you're my disciple, your goal is to become like me in every respect. And 1 John promises that there's gonna come a time where when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That is our goal. So if you ever wonder why you're going through this right now, why are you bothering to keep praying? Why are you bothering to continue attending worship with your fellow Christians? Why, why is it so important? Why, does, why do pastors harp on me all the time about opening up my Bible and reading it? And the answer is because you cannot live a good, flourishing, wholesome human life apart from becoming like Jesus, and all of those disciplines are the way that we pursue godliness, Christ-likeness. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because there is something that we have to do, but before we think about what the we have to do is in our Christian life, there's going to be plenty of weeks of that in Philippians, Paul, it's kind of helpful, does not start with, by the way, this is your goal, Jesus, now these are all the things you have to do. He doesn't start there. Instead, where he starts is, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is about his work in us. So, when you look at the standard of Jesus in the Gospels and you feel like maybe you fall short, I mean, maybe you wouldn't be a person who would stop with a social outcast at a well in Samaria and sit down and talk with her for a few hours. Maybe if Zacchaeus was up in the tree and you saw him, you would be tempted to mock him and ridicule him to score some brownie points with the crowd. Maybe you don't feel that you're anointed with the oil of joy above all your companions the way Jesus was. Maybe you wonder if it really came to it, if you would love your companions to the bitter end in the way that John 13 says that Jesus did. Boy, I I know that for myself, when I read the Sermon on the Mount and I hear Jesus command me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, I feel intuitively, deeply all the ways that I fall short of that. All of us know that Jesus' perfection doesn't come naturally, and so that's why it's really important that in Philippians 1, where Paul starts is not, this is what you must do, but this is what God is doing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So, start with this realization. 
remember what he has done for you in the past. For all of you who are baptized Christians, members of this church, regular attenders, remember that God is the great physician. Now, I had the privilege of preaching at a wedding yesterday, and uh, the couple chose 1 John chapter 4 as their text, and that text reminded me that, like John says, we didn't love God to start with, but he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the point. We don't We don't like love God from the outset intuitively and we just go hunting until we find him. None of us will do that. None of us by nature will do that. But he does love us and he comes searching for us. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to save the one and all of us at some point either are right now or have been the one that he left the 99 to find. So think back to what it was like in your early Christian life. For some of you, it's not that long ago. For some of us, it's been a few decades. But remember what it was like to feel that first pang in your heart when you realized, oh, this is what the gospel is, that I'm, a, that I'm a sinner, that I've done bad things, that I've hurt the people around me, that I can't even not make myself stop hurting the people around me no matter how hard I try, but that Jesus came, died on the cross, and took the punishment for every bad thing that I have done, and so my sin can be forgiven if I ask him. The first time, think about the first time you had that realization, whether you raised your hand at an altar call or prayed quietly with a friend or talked with a parent or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher. Remember what it was like in those days after that to live, to experience that that sense of lightness. Those experiences in the past should give us confidence for what God will do with us in the future. He who began a good work in you. Remember what he began, and then know that if he began it, that he's going to do more of the same in the future. But here's the problem. It's actually pretty common in my experience for Christians at some point along the way in this this Christian life, where they're on their way toward perfection in Jesus, at some point, many of us stop really believing that God is taking us somewhere good that there's, a, there's a, a good end point to this life of discipleship. I like, uh, Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. And there's something really, really helpfully descriptive about that. A lot of us get tripped up on the long part because it is a long trip. One of my regular experiences when I was teaching Greek back in the day would be to sit down with a student who had lost all confidence. Didn't matter when this happened, but in my experience, this usually happened about seven or eight weeks in. They've been pushing really, really, really hard, and suddenly, instead of it getting easier, easier, it just gets more and more and more difficult, and they find that their brain can't handle all the new material I'm dumping on them. So they come to me, and they're like, Devin, I want to quit. I just can't do this. And it's my goal to remind them then of what they've already learned and to give them confidence that what ha- what's worked for them in the past will keep working for them in the future. And this is really the way it works in our spiritual life again and again and again and again. I, one of my favorite biblical illustrations of this is when Moses comes to Egypt to lead the Israelites up out of bondage. So Moses, he's gone to the burning bush. He's encountered God. God's given him miraculous signs that he can perform. So he goes back to Egypt after however long in the wilderness with the sheep. And he tells the Israelites, God sent me. God sent me. We're all coming up out of the land of Egypt into the land that flows with milk and honey, the land that he promised to give give, uh, to Abraham and to his descendants. 
And, you know, he throws down the staff and he makes his hand turn leprous and back out. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is what God is doing. This is phenomenal. And all of Israel bows down and worships God. Okay, what's the next thing that happens? The next thing that happens is that Pharaoh says, uh-uh. And he says, you guys are lazy. So I've given you straw in the past. You're making bricks. Now you're going to have to gather your own straw to make the bricks. Your work just doubled. Enough of this laziness. And so the Israelites, they start to do it, and they find that it's super hard. And they get really, 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 really discouraged. So then the next time when Moses stands up and looks at Israel in Exodus 6 and says, this is what God says. He sent me here to lead you up out of Egypt. He's going to take you to the land of promise. Suddenly, something has changed. Exodus 6, 9 says that they, that is Israel, did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. In the course of two chapters, something changed. They went from absolutely believing that God had a good plan to bring them someplace awesome that he had promised them to this experience of hardship that suddenly made them so downcast that they no longer believed what they had just believed. I would say that this is an unfortunately common description of the Christian spiritual life too. Jesus tells us this is what's going to happen to us. When, he, when in the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed sown on the rocks, and he says that sometimes trouble or persecution is going to arise because of the word, and some people are going to lose heart and fall away. And then some seed is going to be thrown among the thorns, and there's going to be these worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things that aren't really available to us in, in Christ, and people are going to lose heart and fall away. I'm betting that if I pulled the room, all of you would be able to think of at least one season in your Christian life where things got really hard, circumstances got difficult, the job and the career, the vocation that you had banked your life on suddenly evaporates, the spouse that you had invested so much in and who gave so much meaning to your life leaves unexpectedly. Your children who you've poured your heart and soul into, walk away from the faith. And sometimes it's not even that dramatic and sorrowful. Sometimes it's just the slow boil of the world where you find yourself thinking more about cars or watches or houses or handbags than you do about your, the high call of God on your life in Christ Jesus. Don't underestimate the way that the slow boil of the world can impact, can take the knees out from underneath your faith. But this is the good news if you're a Christian. What God did for Israel, he will do for you. Israel lost heart totally between Exodus 4 and Exodus 6, but the story doesn't stop there. God keeps on actually working with Israel over the course of chapters. He judges Egypt and he brings Israel out and he'll do the same thing for you. Was it because Israel was awesome and perfectly faithful? No. But God, who began a good work in Israel, brought it to completion. You can be confident that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in you. I like to say uh, that one of my greatest tests for what someone's future performance on a job will be like is their past performance on the job. If you are in Christ and you are expecting God to bring you to completion, all you have to do is look through the history of the Bible to see the way that God begins with people, very imperfect people, people who do their very best to screw things up, and God nevertheless brings them to completion. 
Abraham does everything he can to screw up the promise. God brings him to completion. David does everything he can to screw up the promise. God brings him to completion. And so on and so forth. I, if, I, if I ran through the list, it would be way longer than the list of the, quote, heroes of faith in Hebrews. There are very few characters in the Bible that you can look at and say, well, that is just like a perfect moral template, right? Be encouraged by those stories. It means that when you feel that you yourself have been falling short, have been missing the mark, that God hasn't decided to abandon you because of it. God is not surprised or intimidated. So what he does is he reminds us very patiently in letters like Philippians that he who began a good work in you and in me is going to bring it to completion. And that completion looks like the face of Jesus. That's where he's taking us. That's who he's making us. Okay, so how does he go about doing it? Because all of us know that the character of Jesus doesn't come naturally. All, otherwise, all of us would right now be like, I don't know, walking across Lake Monona to go grab donuts at Greenbush. I mean, if Jesus were easy to become, we would all be healing the sick and proclaiming sermons from the mount with perfect wisdom and insight into what's actually true and noble and good in the world. But we're not. And Paul gives us the answer here. He says that all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, grace is one of those great Christian words that we often use like we all know what it means, but really there's kind of no there there when we say it. You know, thank God for his grace, and you know, we just kind of wave our hands and amen and move on, and we don't really think about it. But this is what grace is like, and I think this is what Paul means when he says grace. Um, for those of you who are parents, you know what it's like when your kids are trying to lift an object that's way too heavy for them? So you kind of stoop over, and you grab a hold of it too, and you lift just enough so that they, exerting with all their might, can get the thing up. I mean, I really enjoy doing that with my son because he's so proud by the time he gets the thing up to his shoulders like he's military pressed it. He, he just, he thinks he's awesome. I mean, why don't I just totally lift the thing for them? I mean, one, I really like that it develops his willingness to do hard things, and I like that it develops their confidence in me as a father that they know that I will come alongside them and help them lift what they can't lift. And it's actually sort of fun to do it together. And that's grace. It is God's sort of gift to us in the generic sense, but it's not just a gift, totally abstract. I mean, I could give you a gift that was a beautifully wrapped package that had nothing inside. That is not God's grace. What God's grace is specifically is him giving himself to us. He gives us his own divine power so that we can become like him and do what he does. So if I could just give you a couple quick biblical examples. All of you, if you're a part of this church, you're going to hear this verse again and again and again and again. But look at 2 Peter chapter 1. This is verses 3 and 4 where Peter says that his divine power has given given, that is, graced us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given, that is, graced us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He gives us his divine nature. So if you've ever felt like you can't quite live a godly life, Here's Peter's answer. 
Yeah, you can't, but God can because God is God, and if he allows you and I to participate in his divine nature, then we can do what God does, and we should expect that he will make us the sort of people who continually do more and more and better and better what God does, and Jesus is the perfect example of this. Or again, another passage. You could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just gonna read verse nine. Where, uh, this is what This is what God says to Paul when he's struggling with his, quote, thorn in the flesh. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that God's power may rest on me. Now, look at the way that Paul equates power and grace. God's power, the power that calls the world into existence, the power that opens blind eyes, the power that raises the dead, the power that fathoms all mysteries. That's the power that is perfected in Paul's mortal body when he is struggling with physical weakness. It's like, it's like someone who has suffered total heart failure and then receives a transplant. Like that person can no longer say, my heart beats, but they can say that other person's heart beats in me and gives me life. That's what the grace of God is like, and that is how God is going about working in all of us, bringing us to completion one day. He doesn't expect us to do it for ourselves. He knows it's beyond us, but he also knows that his power is not limited and that he doesn't need to be intimidated or frightened by our weakness because he can infuse us with his power so that we live lives that are truly godly and truly Christ-like. So, if you're a Christian, don't despair. If you find yourself struggling to believe that you are actually going to get anything out of this Christianity thing at the end of the day, maybe you've been pushing for weeks, months, years, decades, and you feel dry or confused and you don't know what's going on, maybe you think that the difficulty of your circumstances are evidence that God has forgotten you or that God has abandoned you or that you are a canoe that's half-built sitting in God's living room and he just keeps walking past you and focuses instead on the ball game? I don't know. If that's the way that you actually effectively feel about your faith, instead, I would encourage you to think about it in the way that Israel had to learn to think about their life in Egypt. Egypt is conspiring to keep you bolted to the world. Egypt is conspiring to keep you enslaved. And it turns out when that happens, your life is not comfortable. But the fact that your life is not comfortable, that you're feeling these enemies from without and within, does not mean that God has not absolutely promised to complete the good work that he began in you. And you can see the evidence of his complete work throughout history with his people. So don't be discouraged. Now, in a room that this, uh, that's this size, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who haven't actually believed some of the fundamental premises that I've been assuming for this whole sermon. Maybe you came into this room and you're feeling really broken, frustrated, hopeless, dejected. You've been trying to fix your life. You've been trying to fix your family. You've been trying to fix your kids. You've been trying to fix your job, and it's just not working out. And you can't quite figure out why. And here is God, God's own answer to you. You have to begin with this point. You have to begin by saying, I cannot actually do it. I can't do it. I can't fix myself or the people around me. And God's answer for why you can't do it is is sin. It's because when you behave in ways that are contrary to the commandments of God, you hurt yourself and you hurt the people around you. But the good news is that Jesus, who is perfect love, perfect love exemplified, 
came and took all the punishment that was due to you and to your sin so that you don't have to suffer it yourself. All you have to do is say to Jesus that you believe in him, that you want his help, and that you want to obey him and live the sort of life that he exemplifies. So if I could just have every head bowed and every eye closed, please. If you find yourself in that place in that room today and you feel in just deep in your gut that, man, you would like to live a good life, but you need God's help to do it and you wanna ask him for his help and you want him to forgive you for your sins, please just hold your hand up. Nobody's looking around. I see one, two, three. I can't quite see up in the balcony, but if you're up there, keep you up. There's four. Okay. All of you with your hands up, you can put them down. All of you, uh, you can open your eyes and raise your heads, please. Now, for those of you who just put your hands up, this is what I'm gonna ask you to do. At the end of the service today, there's gonna be a group of us standing down here to pray with folks over by those green chairs. Please walk down, talk to us, tell us that you raised your hand and that you wanna know how, how to follow Jesus. All of you who are here and you raised your hand, if you came with anybody, please walk with that person down here. You don't have to make that walk alone. But rest assured, there's gonna be other folks down here. Nobody's gonna be looking at you sideways like, oh, who's the person who put their hand up? That's not that way. We all come down to pray about other things anyway. All right. I need to land this. So all of you, know for certain that your Lord who called you will be faithful to preserve you spotless until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be all glory in the church, now and forever. Amen.